0: Welcome to Private Equity Laid Bear, I'm your host Ludwig Falipu, and today I have Sam Peter with me who's going to talk to us about the Middle East uh, landscape in terms of private equity. So Sam, thank you very much for being with uh, us here today and can you tell us a bit more about what is it you do in life, um, what, the, what your days consist of and the kind of firm you work for and what is this firm doing?
1: Yeah, thank you Ludo for having me. Um just in short, I'm a vice president at Gateway Partners. And um and Gateway Partners is a private equity firm based out of the Middle East, and we also have an office in Singapore. And um essentially what we do is across emerging markets and um specifically in emerging markets. Um we're investing in South Asia, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. Um I sit out of Dubai and I basically cover all of our Middle East and Africa investments and also um, in sectors that are key I then also get involved in other parts of the the, the geographies that we cover our fund is about 750 million dollars and uh, that was our fund one our fund two has got a target of about a billion dollars and maybe by the time anyone hears this maybe we would have uh, had our first close on that I spend so my you, days. it's
0: yes. a very young firm then you, you you're investing out of your first fund right now
1: Yes, yeah, so we finished investing our first fund uh, back end of 2020 in September. And uh, typically for us, versus a typical five plus five, which is five years investing and five years um, exit, our fund is actually a four years uh, investing and four years exit. So we basically pride ourselves of being able to put capital to use quite effectively and quite quickly.
0: Okay. And, and, um, but so that means that after your MBA, you, you joined like a first time fund, basically.
1: Yeah, so no. So Pretty after wild. my MBA, I joined a, a, a private equity fund based in Africa, um, out of South Africa, and, and, I, and I was there for two years. And then this opportunity came for me to basically be able to invest across Africa and, and also gain some other uh, sectorial and, and, and geography exposure. And I think, I think Asia and the Middle East themselves are actually quite interesting, and hence why then I took the step to join them.
0: And so, who who created this firm? Because if it's a first-time fund, it's usually not a first-time team, or like there is a history behind. So, like, who, who are the people who created it? Where, where do they come from? And
1: yeah, um, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, so, essentially, our, our CEO is um, V Shankar. He was a senior at um, Standard Chartered previously. And he took with him uh, a a spine of of, of partners, and they together form what is known as Gateway Partners. And essentially, they have strong relationships um, across the markets that we invest in and have leveraged those relationships in order to get going and be able to make investment and also raise quite a considerably strong Fund One.
0: Yeah, because Fund One, you said, was 750 million, right?
1: Yes, 750 million. This is remarkable for
0: Fund One, especially for emerging markets where funds tend to be smaller.
1: Yes, no, definitely, definitely. I think um, I think it's a testament to the to the nature and the strength of the relationships that they've built um, over the years, um, and we basically have partners that have got very, very deep understanding of all the markets that we invest in, including Africa, Middle East, uh, uh, and obviously um, South Asia and Southeast Asia.
0: It it feels though that geographically it's a bit of a huge mix because Africa in itself is pretty big and pretty diverse. Then if you add yeah. to that the Middle East, which seems to be quite different, and then, and then you throw in Southeast Asia, it feels like very, very, very different things. A huge geography, like physically very hard to cover all of this. So how does that work?
1: Yeah, I think that's driven by two things. I think firstly, um, if you look at all these regions, um, by, being, by being in Africa only, perhaps you are then forced to only find investments in Africa. And so we are looking for the best comparative opportunities that we can find across all of these markets. So the capital is one pool of capital, and the capital, all the deals that we have in the firm compete for that same pool of capital. And so the bar that every single deal needs to live up to in terms of quality of investment, et cetera, is one that is consistent across all the markets that we invest in. Secondly, given the breadth of experience that the team has, we're able to, for instance, um, if, if if you may have a look at our fund, um, one of our advisors is, um, Ali Kudangote. He sits on our, on advisory board and he's obviously, um, the, the, the wealthiest African, in, um, at at the moment. And that means, and it speaks to our ability to be able to be effective in these markets, specifically where you'd want to be effective at these markets with the most connected people with the the deepest relationships. And so we're able really to leverage all of those relationships instead of actually having offices in every single country, we would be able to get really deep into the weeds of every single
0: geography. I see. So so what, what fraction of your business is really in the Middle East? Um, so when we did our, when we did
1: um, the Tim Hortons deal, uh, that was our first uh, fully fledged transaction that we did there. However, um, consistently uh, going forward, and, and, and with the theme of our fund is that we will always be looking at the Middle East as a as a big investment and a big part of our our, our growth story going forward. And so it really is about relative opportunities that we find and really finding the correct one.
0: Okay, and so so even though you're not you're not specializing only on 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 the Middle East, you you you're still sitting there. So could you uh, use this advantage some to tell us a bit about what is special about the Middle East private equity market landscape? What is different to you know maybe the pure Africa market or the uh, Western Europe US? What is what is different about being a private equity firm based in the Middle East?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very good question. Um, and, and, and one I can say maybe that the, the Middle East uh, private equity market is still in its infancy. Um, I think the asset class globally is a lot older, let's say, and a little bit more understood in sort of, let's say, the US or Europe, And uh, but it's becoming increasingly more important in Africa and the Middle East and other emerging markets. Um, so as a result of that, A lot of the businesses that are in the Middle East are actually still owned by family groups. And in in that, in that, in that, and that creates an opportunity for private equity. One, because within a group in a stable of family assets, um, some of these companies are competing for capital with every other potential business that is in that portfolio. And so some of these are sometimes maybe need a bit more care and they could probably be better off actually sitting outside of the family groups themselves. And that's where private equity can come in and play a very, very interesting role in actually giving capital to companies that may be starved for capital and allowing these companies to be corporatized in order for them to be a lot bigger. I think the the, the deal that I'll take you through a little bit later today covers a bit of those aspects.
0: That's and, and,
1: one. Secondly, because...
0: The, sorry, the, the, on the, this first point, maybe to finish on that first point, to, to emphasize that... Um, if, if it is a lot of family businesses that, that, you know, you would be injecting capital into it, it highlights the importance of relationship, right? So yeah. if, if you, you need to have very good relationship with this, with these families. And so what you are talking about, about the network and who are the partners, et cetera, then is, is even more important and by orders of magnitude compared to the UK or, or the US where you could just like go to auctions and the like, you still need some relationships, but not huge but here's like massive you really need to be very well connected
1: yes no that's definitely true that's definitely true and i think um to to add on to that um additionally how we see opportunities a lot more is through those very same relationships um typically in more developed markets you would have a lot of these businesses already have investment bankers who are, who are covering them. And you know, you only be getting a lot of these opportunities through auction processes, et cetera. Whereas here in our markets, there's a lot more bilateral conversations Having longer-term gestation periods for deals where you're talking to the family groups over a long period of time, I think you'd imagine how difficult it is for someone who's kept a business in their family for generations to consider outside investors to come in and help them grow the business. And so we need to take the entrepreneurs on that journey um, whilst we are looking to invest in a business, whereas you would say in the Western markets, people are so much more akin to, to private equity investors that they are very comfortable allowing um, a process to be run by investment bankers and maybe deals being done on the best price as opposed to this is the best answer for the business yeah, overall. Yeah, makes sense.
0: Yeah, that, what I would think, be all the differences I interrupted you? You had point one and you were moving to point two.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I think additionally as well on the fundraising point um, where where a lot of um, institutional investors exist in the developed markets. Here in the, in the Middle East, there's also quite a big uh, section of the market that's actually high net worth individuals who invest in private equity themselves personally and also then you have sovereign wealth funds who all sit on the top end. So and that's driven mainly by uh, a lot of the, the GCC and the Middle Eastern economies have a big exposure to oil um, and so a lot of them have been trying over time to diversify away from um, the oil dependency. And that, and one of the tools that they've been using to do this is by investing in alternative assets, including private equity, in order for those companies themselves to manage um, companies that are outside the oil and gas industry. And so you have the sovereign wealth funds and the high net worth individuals, whereas in, uh, in, in the U.S., perhaps you have the big... Um, institutional investors, such as CalPERS, et cetera, who for them, private equity is, a, is is some of their bread and butter in terms of where they allocate assets to, et cetera.
0: But, but usually these this, um, um, high net worth individuals, also family offices, basically, and and sovereign wealth funds, they usually prefer to go direct when it comes to investing in natural resources or even like, you know, all kinds of private equity deals. Often they do enjoy investing, venture capital, they prefer to go direct. So how do you sell you know the idea that they need to delegate to a fund so that is outside of a control right again going back to the relationship the the family offices are a bit like the the family businesses they don't like too Mm -hmm. much to give control to someone else about their money Um, typically they like the direct route same for sovereign wealth funds for other reasons like fee mainly Um, so how how does that look then in the middle east for a fund is that easy then to propose this outsourcing solution or it is quite difficult and, and what's what's the landscape there
1: yeah, I think, and I think that's a very good point. I think overall how we we, we we approach this is that, one, we are giving them access to proprietary deal flow that they individually would not be able to get. I think this is then uh, driven by two things. One, that the number of rights that we can get as a shareholder. I can imagine if you were to invest $10 million in a business, The rights that you would get as an investor versus someone who invested $100 million are are completely different. We can deliver board seats. We can deliver active management of these companies on a day to day basis. And so really any um, investor really is getting the benefit of getting um, um, investors who are really, really capable of driving a turnaround strategy of executing an exit on an, uh, uh, via an IPO or a strategy, et cetera. That's a skill set that sometimes sits outside of a, of outside of a family office or without, outside of the capability of a of an of, of institutional investor. And I think that is the value that people are still really willing to pay for. But still, they
0: could, they could buy this expertise on a deal-by-deal deal basis, right? They could say, I pay you to source things, et cetera. So they could have like a deal-by-deal deal with you yeah. rather than going in a, in a blind pool of capital, like a, a fund.
1: Yeah. And, 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 and I completely agree with that. I think, um, there's a lot of, uh, structures that exist in the Middle East today where people are going on a deal by deal basis. Now, however, the difficulty of a deal by deal structure is that the, the general partner or the GP themselves really do struggle then to be able to survive and continuously find top quality, um, deals. And what generally people do to defray some of these costs um, that are associated with the private equity structure, obviously, which is the two and 20, is at times that that 2% is maybe for a percentage of the capital that is being uh, invested. And then additionally, they are then allowed to bring in additional capital um, which falls outside of that two and 20 structure, but maybe just only a share of the 20. So you commit X amount of capital to the fund, but then you're also allowed to co-invest in order to defray some of those management fees.
0: Yeah, and and also another thing that thinks, feels a bit different about the Middle East is probably like the the exit landscape, right? So well, the IPOs have dried up in, in in Europe and and in the US too, but still there is an IPO route if one wanted to, and it's also you also have the the, the the trade sales that are very common because the M&A market is very active. It doesn't smell like the Middle East M&A market is that active. Like going back to what you said, it's pretty hard to sell businesses because you know the, the people don't don't do these things without a long-term relationship. So it looks like the, the, the exit route for private equity would also be a bit more difficult in, in, in the Middle East, but also in the other geographies uh, you, you're covering.
1: Yes, I think, I th- I think that, that there's some truth in that. Um, to counter that, I would say, if you look at the Middle East, some of the key exchanges that exist today, you've got the Tadawal that is in Saudi Arabia. Now that's recently been included in the MSCI emerging market index. And so that has meant that the amount of liquidity that is being driven through that exchange is going to increase considerably over a period of time. We saw the, the IPO of Saudi Aramco. And obviously there is a very large scale transaction, but this is one of the largest IPOs that has been IPO uh, businesses that have been IPO, IPO'd in the world. And so yes, the IPO markets are still somewhat nascent, but I think there are opportunities that are opening up both in Saudi Arabia and also in um, in the UAE. The other option that people normally look at when they're looking for an exit is sometimes selling on to a larger global private equity fund. So, for instance, I will mention, um, if you look at there's a big education company called GEMS. Now, they've been able to go from having some local private equity owners to having international private equity players, such as CBC cetera, and Blackstone, et cetera. So that, that exit option also exists as well. And in addition, obviously, then it is to sell to either a strategic, which is local, or even an international strategic that might find interest in that. So there really is some thinking that needs to go into that. And how we think about it is when we look and go into a transaction, by the time we are deciding on how to do a transaction, we really must know what the exit route looks like for us. And so for us, we normally then can structure a um, structured exit we have it in writing that the plan is to go for a particular IPO or a particular exit strategy in X period of time. Because I think the biggest, um, one of the bigger failings or, or, or trouble points for emerging market private equity has the ability, has been completed to secure exits. And so that's something that we spend a lot of time uh, working on as a
0: firm. Yeah, so that's important. This is something I always highlight, that, that one of the key characteristics of private equity is that you think about the exit when you're doing a deal, right? This is... Pretty unique to, to private equity. Um, yeah. what, are, what are the key themes going forward in, in, in the Middle East?
1: No, um, that, uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a fair question and I think the Middle East itself is going through a number of structural changes. I had mentioned earlier that the dependency and the reduction of the dependency on oil and gas is a, is a key theme. That seems
0: quite an emergency the, right now, right? The oil yeah, prices have gone down, it, it must have put some people into stress.
1: Yes, yes, it definitely is. And so we're seeing economies diversifying and that creates a lot of opportunity for private equity, bring businesses that work from elsewhere or to even, uh, build businesses in those in, in, in from, from the scratch and the ground up. So there's one is the, the, the reduction in oil dependency. I think the second one is the improvement of inter trade between the GCC countries. Uh, previously. What, what is GCC? Deal- now, the GCC is the Gulf Corporation countries. And so this, this entails um, the Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Oman, Qatar, etc. So it basically... But is they, they, there is
0: companies. a bit of a fight there, right? There is kind of two camps and...
1: Yes, yes. So there was so there previously an embargo on, on Qatar. And what that did was it basically um, slowed down the flows of business between Qatar, the UAE and Qatar and, and, and Saudi Arabia. Over time, now there's a solution that is emerging, and now it allows for the inter the, the intertrade to 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 continue. So that um, is mention- the
0: the problem of Qatar is now you know behind it because yes. I, I was I was in Saudi Arabia a couple of years ago and I remember <laughs> that the Qatar thing was a big deal.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Just to put a, a, a very very simple example, um, for us to 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 to, to get. To perhaps go to Saudi Arabia or, or, or to get to Qatar from, um, let's say the UAE, you would have to then fly into Oman and then from Oman take another flight, which obviously is a 45-minute flight, but the round trip then becomes six hours. So you can imagine how much that is going to alleviate in terms of business and the just uh, movement of goods and and, and, and trade between the, the, the Middle East. I think it's a great improvement uh, overall for the region.
0: Excellent. Yeah
1: um yeah so i think just moving on from that i think the other one is you've got the 2022 world cup that is coming um in in, in qatar
0: why, why and... is that such a big theme i mean we know france is gonna win but like besides that like <laughs> what's the big deal about it no
1: no i i i i i think the there the, the might likely be a a middle east winner um but no, oh, so Generally, you're already like,
0: buying out referees and everything to make sure
1: <laughs> no, 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 but I think honestly the the big improvement that a a World Cup does to a region is it allows people to come from outside and see how the people operate in that particular region itself, and once they have an understanding of the people and have a oneness or or, or closer understanding of. The, the The cultural um, dynamics in, the, in in a country, people then are a lot more willing to do business with that. I think it has not only just an economic impact during the the period of the World cup but just in terms of people 's affinity with the Middle East, will it really improve for the region going forward and I think if you put it in perspective where geographically the middle east is is so strategic in terms of trade flows. Etc. And I think there's a lot of money that is being left on the table by the Middle East itself not being fully integrated with the world economy. I think the World Cup itself is a great um, moment to, to reset those relationships and really carve a, 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 a better understanding of the region, integration with the rest of the world.
0: That's super interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much for like covering the Middle East in such a clear way. Um, yeah. and I can definitely like relate to, to the things I've seen on the ground myself. And um, I was in Kuwait not so long ago, right before the lockdown. And um, yeah, certainly can relate to, to what you say. Um, and so maybe if we go to, to, to deals to go through like some transactions, it's always nice to have a bit of a case study to talk about and and actual deals to talk about. And ideally to talk about one that didn't work out and one that did work out. Uh, Could you do that for us to like briefly walk us through some deals saying what happened and what you guys did? Yeah,
1: no, 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 definitely. Maybe I'll start off with um, the the good news uh, and I'll start off with one that that, that we did that worked. Um, In uh, 2020, um, we acquired a 40 odd percent stake in uh, Tim Hortons. Uh, now, Tim Hortons, for those that don't know, is essentially the Starbucks of um, Canada. They're owned by Restaurant Brands International, who also own. Yeah, Burger it's the nice Starbucks. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's the nice Starbucks. <laughs> and um, when at the time when we 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 got into the transaction, it was the first deal that we've done in the Middle East. The deal itself has um, gone on to win um, the cross the the cross-border deal of the year for for 2020 and particularly because uh Tim Hortons is is, is the, lo- the we bought the franchisee and the franchisee is the largest Tim Hortons franchisee outside of North America it has 140 stores and it has operations in Saudi, UAE, Qatar uh, Kuwait, Bahrain and Oman. I see. So this let me a- tr-
0: try to get that straight. Sorry. So so because at first it sounds a bit weird that a, a Middle East and emerging market specialist buys a big Canadian thing. But that's not, that's not what you bought. So what you bought were people were franchising um, yes. some Tim Hortons in the Middle East region. So you bought the, then it's like the real estate you're buying you're buying the, the operations and real estate of these restaurants and then you have you know to send back some money to to that brand but what you have is the, the, the physical restaurants or, or coffee places in in the middle east
1: yes that's that's exactly true so what we what we own is essentially the operation of all these restaurants and the real estate itself we don't really want to get into the real estate game so we rent out all of our properties for the okay. for, for the So it's the operation it of a right- large
0: number of restaurants. Okay, yeah, it's
1: operation of a large number of restaurants. And for that, we pay um, RBI, a franchise fee, yeah. um, or royalty fee, if you want to call it that, on a, on a, on a, on a per month basis. Uh, which is a percentage of revenues. But overall, what we liked about this was that this was playing into the coffee culture. And if you look globally, there's a couple of acquisitions that have happened in the space. So if you see Coca-Cola, they bought uh, Costa Coffee, Jab have also built up a considerable stake in the coffee business. And we thought about coffee as a, a, a as part of people moving towards more healthier options versus drinking and soda. And so, coffee... Yeah, well, I
0: mean, everything is relative, right? So coffee may be yeah. healthy relative <laughs> to soda. I, I don't drink either soda or coffee for, for health reasons, but yeah, okay. No, fair it's, enough. It's and relatively I, healthier, yeah. Let's call it yeah, this way. It's, I mean, it's people could healthy, also be yeah. drinking chai and like all kinds of other things or, you know, or French wine mm-hmm. and then, you know, it's all fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, unfortunately- you Try that in the Middle French, East, yeah. And, uh, in most <laughs> of the Middle East. Um, but yes, so people have been moving towards healthier choices. And with the increase of work culture, you found that a lot of people were going to more coffee shops and spending time working at a coffee shop, et cetera. And additionally, coffee itself offers you know, gross margins of about 85%, which is quite strong uh, for a single product that is sold on a day-to-day basis. Furthermore, we felt that the the, the, the franchise had already figured out what the box of that, that worked. So they knew that if I can build a box that is of this nature and put it in a location of this nature, I can get these types of economics. And all they basically needed was capital in order to expand across all of the GCC. So our capital went purely into the business, 100% of the capital went into the business with the intention of rolling out as many of these stores as possible. Additionally, what we thought was quite attractive about the deal was that we were able to negotiate uh, both the Egypt and India rights. We felt that India is the second most populous uh, country in the world. And we felt that if we were able to expand there, one, it gave us a very big growth story for the business overall. But additionally, what also was attractive is that we could also access the India IPO markets if that would not necessarily needed. Yeah, the stock market in
0: India is quite well developed. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And yeah, and the market is a lot more developed there. And so it gave us a couple of options. And we we, we thought overall the transaction was quite attractive. And okay. the multiples in the market at the time for these types of businesses were, were 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 good. But we feel that over time that they will increase. And if you look at what has happened in the food and beverage and also sector, you can see the Burger King IPO that's recently happened um, in um in India, where um, Everstone were able to IPO their franchise uh, of Burger King at, a, at, a, at quite a very strong multiple. And so overall, we thought the thesis for, for Tim Hortons for the next couple of years will be quite attractive for us.
0: Oh, that's very um, cool.
1: Thank, thank, yeah. you so,
0: thank, thank you very much for walking us through that. We, we, we should probably do an entire uh, show on this, but we yes. are a bit over time. So can you say quickly, like give an example of something that didn't work out and why, and then maybe uh, we, we can conclude on that.
1: Oh, no, definitely. Um, And so one of the businesses that we looked at here in the Middle East um, that we wanted to do as our first deal was a catering company. And essentially, it was basically doing catering contracts um, for hospitals and other sectors in in, in Saudi. At the time, the things that were working against the deal were the following. One, um, they had a big receivables issue. Uh, Lots of the contracts were with government entities, and so at times there are potentials for delays in payments, and so the company had some cash issues, etc. So this created a lot of cash flow pressure overall, and we felt that 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 receivables issue was not something that maybe might be able to work itself out over time. Additionally, with contract-based businesses, you don't really have assets. And so once that contract ends, it's possible for the revenues of the business to fall off a cliff if it's no longer renewed or if you're not able to replace those particular um, uh, contracts. And then I think the other element of it that we couldn't get comfortable with was the price point, i.e. the multiple that we had to pay. Um, And then once and if, even if you get comfortable on the multiple that you're about to pay we felt that maybe having an earnout structure was something that would probably also further limit our downside so what I is mean, an
0: earnout structure
1: overpaying an earnout structure is essentially saying we will pay you x amount today and based on how the p- business performs in the next couple of years you can then earn out an additional amount of value by hitting the targets that you have said that you' played It's like
0: we do with football players we say we say we we sell you this player, you buy it for one million, but if it starts scoring goals then you pay us extra
1: yes that's that that's that, 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 that's the simple nature of it. It's got many different nuances but in, in 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 at its core it's 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 based on making sure you don't you don't overpay and you pay for 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 for, for performance
0: excellent okay yeah. Okay. Um, thank, thank you so much, Sam. Uh, we, we are a bit over time, but, but it was really fascinating and, and, and it was really amazing to, uh, to get into the Middle East with you and, and, and you did a wonderful job. So this was Middle East laid bare. Don't forget to subscribe. Congratulations on your acquisition of one more piece of lo- knowledge. Bye bye.